1: Hello you spectacular people. Welcome to this 465th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I'm your host Diane and this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode we are going to a bed and breakfast in St. Louis. This is the Lehman House Bed and Breakfast. And Kelly, if anyone lives anywhere near this St. Louis neighborhood in Lafayette Park, please go out and take pictures for us. It is an extraordinary sounding neighborhood. Before we get into telling you about the history and haunts of this bed and breakfast and that area right there, we want to welcome into the spooktacular
2: crew, Kelly, who spells her name the right way, Kelly, <laughs> Brittany, and Matt. Thank you so much for joining us in our Facebook group. And now this moment naughty. Dumpster diving is a term most of us are familiar with. Sometimes the words are describing the act of pulling a cast-off item from the trash to rework it into something creative, be it artwork or repurposing. In the case of a husband in New Hampshire, it was with a sentimental and monetary purpose that he went dumpster diving into 20 tons of garbage. Yuck. Sure more, because digging up executive producers in the cemetery isn't gross. Thankfully, the man was aided in his local garbage transfer station by their team and an excavator. Luckily, there was an identifying item that assisted the men in finding the correct garbage bag out of those 20 tons of trash. The identifying item was a celery stalk. There had been celery in the trash bag the man had disposed of, and one bag was seen with the stalk protruding from it. The poor husband sifted through the bag and stated that the ring was not there. However, an employee said, No, there's a couple little pieces left. The employee then pulled a napkin out of the bottom of the bag and lo and behold, within that crumpled cloaking capsule lay the ring that the husband had placed on his bride's finger years before. Without a doubt, unexpected treasures can be found by dumpster diving. But old celery leading a person to a treasure such as a lost wedding ring certainly is odd.
0: Chikaboo, I see you. Yeah, you with the little thing sticking in your ears. I'm in your head right now. Those are my fingers in your brain.
2: (laughs) And now this month in history.
1: In December, on the 15th in 1944, Major Alton Glenn Miller was declared dead after having gone MIA during a military flight over the English Channel. The trombone-playing composer, conductor, and American big band founder is most famously recognized for music synonymous with the big band era of the 1930s and 40s. Glenn Miller and his orchestra was an American band he formed with other musicians in 1938. His music has come to be known as the soundtrack of the World War II era as well as the swing dance generation. Miller began professionally recording music in New York City in the 1920s. Over the years, his music writing skills evolved, as did the members of his orchestra. After signing with Bluebird Records, Miller's band struck enormous success playing the Glen Island Casino on the North Shore of Long Island Sound in New Rochelle, New York. Glenn Miller's chart-topping success in such a short period of time has rarely been matched. Cue, In the Mood.
0: (laughs)
2: The Lehman House Bed and Breakfast is located at number 10, Benton Place, in St. Louis, Missouri. This is in the historic Lafayette Square neighborhood. The home has been the residence for a couple of prominent families in St. Louis, and then fell into a bit of disrepair as it served as a rental property. In the 1990s, it was restored and turned into a bed and breakfast and continues to be that today. This not only hosts tourists to the city, but also a couple of ghosts, and they embrace their haunted reputation. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Lehman House Bed and Breakfast.
1: Lafayette Square is St. Louis's oldest historic district, so now you know why I'm so fascinated by this neighborhood and want pictures. The Gateway Arch is within walking distance, and downtown St. Louis is just three blocks north. There are a number of Victorian homes here, and a walk through this neighborhood stuns the architectural and historical senses. The first thing that catches the eye are the colors of hue. They are abundantly rich in greens, purples, and blues. Better Homes and Gardens named this neighborhood as one of the nation's 12 prettiest painted places in 2012. And then there's the architecture, which features mainly Second Empire styling with arched doorways and windows and mansard roofs and ornate cornices. There are also homes designed with Germanic influence and Italianate style. Lafayette Park is the anchor to this urban oasis and was dedicated in 1851, making it the oldest urban park west of the Mississippi. Interesting. Yeah. Initially, it was part of St. Louis Commons and was set aside as Lafayette Square, later changing to its current name. The name Lafayette is in honor of the Marquis de Lafayette. The Commons was a place for livestock grazing and criminals. Thieves used the cover to rob travelers. Turning this into a park and selling off lots around it not only drove out the crime, but made this an affluent area. Homes started going up in the early 1850s and continued through the 1880s. The Daily Democrat wrote on June 27, 1870, In looking about the city and noting its improvements, we've been struck with the great progress attained in the vicinity of Lafayette Park. Within two years, some of the finest residences in the city have been erected, and the work is still going on. The beauty of the grounds, the elevation above the city, the character of the buildings, the beautiful shade trees, wide streets, and accessibility to the city by two lines of horse cars— The restrictions by statute upon the erection of objectionable buildings or the carrying on of objectionable businesses all combined should make this quarter the most desirable in the city for residents. And then came the tornado of 1896.
2: This came to be known as the Great Cyclone of 1896. The Twister made its way across Shaw's Garden and then headed up towards Compton Heights and then to Jefferson Avenue, which borders the Lafayette Park neighborhood. This neighborhood was hit harder than anywhere else in St. Louis, with nearly every house losing its roof. Some houses lost their second floors and walls were blown out. The neighborhood was on a hill, so it had no protection. The tornado almost seemed to come to a stop right in the middle of the area and then moved on to the Skullin Power Plant. It destroyed the south side racetrack and ravaged the streetcar line. Then the twister hit the park, measuring three quarters of a mile wide and splintered trees. By the time the storm had passed, most homes were damaged beyond repair. The home of cotton magnet Jerome Hill had huge gaps in the walls. No roof and all the windows were blown out. The Alexander Selkirk home was gone. The solderer home was nearly gone and the carriage house was destroyed and had piled on top of the horse and driver, and the John Endrys home was unlivable. The John Benny home had fallen on Mrs. Benny and the couple’s two sons. Efforts were made quickly to save them as a fire started in the rubble. But Mrs. Benny wouldn’t allow herself to be pulled to safety until her children were saved. One child burned to death, but the other was saved with bad burns. Mrs. Benny was then saved with burns and bruises.
1: Some homes were rebuilt while others were repaired. The Great Depression and World War II relocation affected the neighborhood after the destruction of the tornado, and many of the once grand homes became apartment buildings. The neighborhood deteriorated until the 1950s, becoming a haven for crime. And isn't it interesting that this area had once been a haven for crime back before they put the homes in there? Then people started to buy the old homes and renovate them through to the 1970s, and the Gilded Age was reborn in the neighborhood. It was during the renovations of the 1970s that ghost stories started to be told about homes in the neighborhood. The Sauterer house had lost its coachman, William Taylor, as we had just said that the carriage house had fallen on them. He had been hiding in the cellar with the family, but the cries of Bess the horse brought him out of his safety net. He ran to the barn for her, even though Mr. Sauterer told him to stay. The roof collapsed as Taylor attempted to pull the animal out of the barn. Apartments were built on the foundation of the stable, and people who moved into the building started complaining about eerie sounds from within the walls. The noises usually came when there were thunderstorms. People would hear a horse crying and horse hooves beating on the ground. Hopefully, this is just residual energy.
2: In the 1970s, the Blair Hughes mansion was condemned, but a hearty soul named Timothy Conley bought the house and set about restoring it. This had been a boarding house for nearly 70 years and was full of trash. This was originally owned by President Lincoln's Postmaster General, Montgomery Blair. He had a special ceiling designed for the drawing room, and it took Conley a year to restore the ceiling to its former pale blue and stark white bass relief with gold leaf embellishments. Hidden away in the walls were original 16-foot pocket doors. They said
1: it was amazing that they found these because usually this type of thing would have been pulled out and used as firewood or some other kind of wood so they were pushed so far back into the wall that they think people didn't even know they were there
2: wow there was also gorgeous walnut woodwork beneath piles of paint and a parquet pegged floor beneath layers of linoleum the restoration took two years and during that time conley seemed to awaken a ghost the spirit was experienced by people who lived in the boarding house they heard strange noises and felt cold spots and heard disembodied footsteps on the third floor. No one could live on the floor for more than one day. Likewise, Conley would hear loud bangs coming from the third floor. Every time he would check to see if someone broke in, he would find no one on that floor. On another occasion, he found a piece of furniture that took four men to move, sitting in the middle of a room on the third floor. So that was the history of this neighborhood, but now we want to
1: focus on one particular house. Edward S. Rouse and his wife Ann Eliza had the Lehman House built in 1892 by the Peabody and Stearns architectural firm. Initially, the house was to cost twenty-five thousand dollars to complete, but just as is the case today, Kelly, the house went way over budget, costing fifty thousand dollars. Good grief! So it doubled its price, and that would be two million in today's dollars. The mansion was ten thousand square feet and was designed in the Romanesque Revival architectural style. Rouse was a financier and served on the city council in St. Louis. He also served on the board at Washington University. He had a prolonged illness, believed to be stomach cancer, and that eventually took his life and he died in his bedroom in the house. Rouse had barely been in the house for a year. Imagine taking all the time to build this big, beautiful home and then you die. So sad. He was buried at Bell Fountain Cemetery. Eliza had died before him and was already buried there, so it would be my understanding that she never actually got to live in this house.
2: The next owner of the house was Frederick William Lehman, and this is who the house is named for. He was a prominent lawyer and politician who served as a 13th Solicitor General of the United States under President William Howard Taft from 1910 to 1912. Lehman was a great orator And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. once said of Lehman that he was so persuasive, I don't dare decide against Lehman. You feel as though you're ruling against God. I guess he was pretty persuasive. In 1912, Lehman returned to St. Louis where he had moved in 1890 and set up a law practice with his sons. He was involved in some important cases. One established the right of the Associated Press to news as intellectual property. He also represented the Coca-Cola Company and preserved their right to continue to use coca in their name after they were sued for fraud since actual cocaine had been removed from the cola. (laughs) I want to know who brought that suit. You guys are lying. There's not cocaine in here anymore. And I think a lot of us remember hearing about this. In one form or another.
1: <laughs> oh, I know. And when we were kids, you know, you'd talk about it. Oh, that coca. It meant there was a cocaine in here at one time. No wonder everybody loved drinking the stuff. <laughs> now it has sugar in it, which is probably more addictive than cocaine could ever hope to be. Oh, my goodness.
2: Lehman opposed Prohibition and pushed to have investment banks separated from commercial banks as investments are risky while commercial banking is supposed to protect money. And he was very important to St. Louis as he drafted the charter for the city in 1909, under which the city continues to run. He was a bibliophile and collected rare books. And author Henry James visited him at the Lehman House. Lehman died in 1931 at the age of 78, and he was buried at Bell Fountain Cemetery. It was neat. When Henry
1: James came to visit him at the house, I guess Lehman had this amazing memory. And he would memorize whole pieces of books. When Henry James came to visit, he recited a bunch of his works to him. And Henry James even said, I don't even remember half that stuff and I wrote it. (laughs) Too funny. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Hey, Mort, who are you calling?
0: Sunbright Realty. I'm in the market for a new mausoleum.
1: Mort, that's a different business model.
0: But Sunbright helps people find their dream home.
1: They do, but not that kind of dream home. When it comes to buying or selling a home, probably the most important decision you could make is... Who's your realtor? I mean, you need somebody you can trust. Most definitely. Broker owner Lou Salvamini has over 20 years combined experience managing homes and real estate throughout the Central Florida area. And he can help maintain your home with termite and pest detection and control and help you with your lawn maintenance. We trust Lou with our property it's like a one-stop shop for your home. You can find out more at sunbrightrealty.com and sunbrightservices.com.
0: Looking for your dream home? Look on the bright side. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.
1: Marie and Michael Davies bought the house in 1992. Marie owned the home twice in her lifetime. The first time she purchased it with a college friend who was experienced in house renovation. They owned the property for two years. They sold it and made triple their investment. That's a good job. But something about the house was ingrained in Marie. She couldn't stop thinking about the house. In the eight years that followed, she got married, had kids, and opened up a bed and breakfast in Lafayette Square. That house was too small for the growing family and Marie knew that the Lehman House was being rented out. They asked the landlord if he would sell and he agreed. They turned the rental home into the Lehman House bed and breakfast. And as I said, they needed a bigger house to raise their kids. Something that I don't know that I've ever heard about other beds and breakfasts. They literally raised their family in this bed and breakfast too. So like now up on the upper floor, the room you can rent out there used to be
2: the quote unquote boys room. They must have had very well-behaved children. I guess. I
1: can't imagine trying to raise kids in a house that you're having guests. I guess boarding houses were that
2: way, but... The Bed and Breakfast has seven rooms today. The President's Room, Nora's Room, Frederick's Room, the John Stark Room, the World's Fair Room, the Judge Sears Room, and the Maid's Room. Nora's Room is named for Lehman's wife and was the master bedroom featuring maple floors and cherry woodwork. This has a private bath with the original marble sink. The John Stark room is named for one of Lehman's sons and features Douglas fir woodwork and maple floors. Lehman had been on the board of directors for the 1904 World's Fair, and that is the inspiration behind that room's name. The Lehman's had two live-in maids, and that is the inspiration behind that room, and is located in what had been the servants' quarters of the house. So there's this neat story about the maid's
1: room. It was early in the renovations of Lehman House the spring of 1993. Emery writes, We were scrambling to open by July 1st. We had determined that the two rooms easiest to open would be the president's room and the maid's room. We ran into a problem in the maid's room. We could tell that the floor was less than sound under the questionable carpet. We decided to rip up the carpet, grungy at best, and explore the floor issue. What we found were several rotten boards that caved when stepped on. We ripped them up, went off to buy new nicer carpeting, some floorboards, returning ready to fix the floor. July 1st was looming. As we began, we heard a faint meow. As illogical as it seemed, it was coming from the hole in the floor. A minute later, a ladder meow escaped the hole in the floor. Nervously, I reached in as far as I could grasp and found a cat. Clutching her, luckily she had a very slim body, as gently as I could, I pulled her all the way out. As I looked down, sunlight glinted on something I hadn't noticed before. I wiped away the floor grunge to discover a butter knife, what turned out to be a sterling silver butter knife. Guests who have stayed will recognize it as the butter knife on the table each morning. After a bit of research, I discovered the pattern to be made by Gorham and offered initially in 1901 when the Lehmans lived here. We surmised that perhaps at least one of their servants had hidden a valuable quote-unquote souvenir, forgotten, To be found by me 90 years later. Yeah, hidden a valuable souvenir. Some servant was like, I'm going to go sell this thing. Alas, when completely refinishing the floor in full three years ago, I personally shoveled out all of the debris, but there was no more silver to be found. What an amazing finding. First of all, how in the world the cat down there? I know. And then she looks in there and there's this butter knife. I'm sure they cleaned it really well. (laughs)
2: That was going through my brain as you were reading.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But how cool is that? And I just got to thinking, you know, I I wouldn't put it beyond. You see this really nice silver and you sell that in town. You might have gotten a little something back then. Now it's not really going to be worth a
2: whole lot. The Bed and Breakfast has made a top 10 list of most haunted places in Missouri. First owner Edward Rouse is definitely thought to be here. A woman's voice has been caught in EVPs. Shadow figures have been seen throughout the house. There are three rooms that have the most activity. President's room, Judge Sears' room, and Nora's room. One couple who stayed in Nora's room wrote, We heard that Nora's room was the most active room, so reserved it. We sat in the dark to see what would happen. We were not disappointed. After about 30 minutes, three orbs shot across the room, one after the other. We slept with the bathroom light on after that. I don't blame them. (laughs) I mean, to see three orbs shooting across the room, because usually you don't
1: see orbs with the naked eye. It's usually something you get a picture of.
2: And in the dark. Yeah,
1: especially because it have to be glowing a little bit. I'd be like, no, 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 no.
2: A woman named Barb, who stayed in 2022, said, The first night we stayed, I felt like someone was sitting in the chair by the window, staring at me. Then a rush of emotion came across me and I started crying. What an experience. I wonder what she was picking up on there.
1: Marie has experienced a lot of unexplained things in the time that she's owned the house. During the first ownership, Marie had a neighbor named Cindy who wanted to come over and see the floors that had just been newly refinished. Marie invited her to come over and have some wine. She writes, just as we began chatting, we both heard the same noise above us, both looking up as we did. Then Cindy asked, what was that? After a moment's thought, I said, it sounded like a wagon being pulled across the floor. Cindy said, I thought we were alone. I thought all of the workers went home. Marie replied, we are. They did. And by the way, the floor above us is carpeted. (laughs) Oh, my word. (laughs) I would have loved to have seen Cindy's face where it's like, I thought we were here by ourselves. And how do you hear a wagon going across the carpet? Cindy jumps up announcing, I have to go home. Marie replied, no, you don't. Here, grab a poker and let's go investigate.
2: I just love this. funny.
1: Reluctantly, she accompanied me up to the room that's now named Nora's room. We slowly opened the door, flipping on the lights, and saw nothing. I could just see these two women peering through the door.
2: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: The three windows were still closed. Nothing in the room was disturbed. No one was there. I reluctantly let her leave and slept with the lights on that night. And I bet Cindy didn't come over to see anything else that got refinished. (laughs) I'm sure not. I'm not going in your house again.
2: Many of those early experiences for Marie were audio. Another experience was explained as, On another evening in the house alone, while on the second floor, I heard what I thought was someone in the house. I ran into the turret bedroom, the only one I could lock from the inside. I went to the windows, hoping to get someone's attention from the outside. After a while, a police car came onto the street, but no amount of effort on my part got their attention. After maybe an hour, I was more bored than scared and went to investigate. Poker in hand, again. At least she's got her weapon, you know. Those pokers (laughs) probably could do some major damage. And again, nothing. All the exterior doors were locked from the inside. Windows all tightly closed. No one there. So you can imagine she hears a noise like
1: somebody's walking around the house, and she locks herself into a room for protection, which is what I would do. And then... (laughs) (laughs) Would have <laughs> loved to have seen her standing in the window waving her arms. And then we hear another story the next morning. Couple walking past house, look up and see ghosts waving at them frantically from a window in the haunted house <laughs> in Lafayette Square.
0: <laughs> and
1: it's Marie going, call the cops. She's probably lucky that no cop paid any attention to her and that she just got bored and walked out because you could just imagine him seeing her flailing around and then breaking into the house and being like, did you lock yourself in and needed help? Or what was the problem here? So, when Marie and Michael had made the home theirs, they spent 14 months renovating, and on many occasions, Marie was there alone. She would take her two dogs with her, and one of them was always resistant to going into certain rooms. One time, she dragged this dog into the library as he dug his heels in. When she finally released his lead, he bolted from the room. Later, Marie learned that an owner had died in the library in 1980. The parlor is pretty active as well. Marie shared an experience about this room when she was doing renovations. The only light in the parlor at that time was a wall sconce all the way in the back on the left inside the turret. Straight away, I noticed when going into that room a presence in the middle of the room as if there were people sitting on either side of a coffee table. Only the room was completely empty. We hadn't moved in yet. The presence was so strong, I couldn't bring myself to walk through the room to get to the light switch, but rather walked cat-like around the edges of the room quickly batting at the light switch and bolting from the room. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> sounds like something i would do to quickly get the hallway light on as i dashed to the bathroom in the middle of the night
1: <laughs> i don't even know that i would have tried to go in there to turn the light on if i thought i saw a couple of people sitting at the coffee table if anything i would have tried to turn on like an outer light in a hallway you or... would have grabbed a poker <laughs> and i would have grabbed a poker before <laughs> it would have been hard to do the little cat like walk around the edge of the room but still
2: <laughs> on another occasion the house needed some plumbing work before the grand opening Marie writes, then one Saturday, I was over at the house to meet the plumber, Bud. He had to make a phone call, so I took the moment to pop into the restroom. As I was washing up, I heard the very distinct sound of a man wearing hard-soled shoes walking down the second floor hallway. I ran out to alert Bud there was someone in the house, but he heard it too. We raced upstairs to check it out, but there was nothing, no one, nowhere. That's when I conceded that we indeed had a ghost and began referring to him as the first owner, Edward. The two most profound experiences for Marie came on two different nights.
1: One night, she was awakened from her slumber and saw a man standing at the edge of her bed. She had seen a couple of pictures of Edward Rouse, and she recognized this man as the spirit of Rouse. A few nights later, she was awakened from her sleep again, and this time, there wasn't just a male figure at the end of her bed, but also a female figure. She recognized the woman as Anna Eliza. So even though I don't think she ever lived in the house, they're apparently together in the afterlife. And I'd wondered, how does she know that this is that first owner, Edward, that's hanging around? You know, why wouldn't it be Lehman or maybe somebody else? There's been a lot of people that have been through this place as a boarding house. But because she's seen him, I'm assuming that's why she just assumes everything's being made by him. But they might have multiple ghosts here, especially one of the owners died in 1980 and the dog won't go in that room. He must be hanging out too.
2: One would think. The Lafayette Park neighborhood is a beautiful historic neighborhood that has seen some tragedy that has spawned some spirits. The Lehman House seems to be home to a couple of spirits as well. Is the Lehman House bed and breakfast haunted? That That is is for you to decide. decide.
1: My dad's entire side of his family lives in St. Louis. I've been there many, many times in my life and never been to this neighborhood. I can't believe none of my relatives have ever told me about this place. They must not know about it.
2: What is wrong with them and you? I don't know. I mean, I've been down to the Limp
1: Mansion and everything. So I'm like, how have I missed this place? So if we ever get back to St. Louis, we are definitely going to be checking this out. It just sounds extraordinary. Heck yeah. And the bed and breakfast looks like a really cool place to stay. And they embrace the haunted big time. So I'm like, any place that embraces it, I just love being there. Because then they're happy to tell you their stories. We're all about it. Something we'd be happy for you to do is go to our website at History Goes Bump. Dot com, And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We also have people that leave us comments on social media or in our Spooktacular crew. And Jill wrote this in the Spooktacular crew. My cousin stayed at the Myrtles with her daughter a few years back. While on the haunted tour in front of this exact mirror, it's the haunted mirror there, she noticed she was missing an earring that she was wearing earlier. She felt uneasy the entire tour and her daughter felt like someone touched her near the stairs. That night, they start unpacking their clothes and getting ready for bed. As my cousin pulled the sheets back, she found her missing earring under her pillow. They had not slept in that room yet and had not messed with the bed at all before going on the tour. Interesting. That is amazing. (laughs) Haven't been anywhere near that bed. How is your earring under the pillow? What's even more chilling, I guess, about that story is how did they know what room they were in to get the earring off of her and then into the right room?
2: Right. And the only thing I can think of is maybe they had already been assigned to that room, but they just hadn't been in it yet. And so whatever spirit was messing around may have seen that at the front desk. Yeah, maybe. Courtney wrote in the crew. Hi, all. I was listening to the
1: Fort Morgan episode. The part where you all said that you couldn't find much on haunting there. Well, I stayed there several times in my high school years. My best friend's family were Civil War reenactors. I went to events with them in my big borrowed hoop skirts. That's cool that she played along. Yeah. I was a senior in high school for this story, so that would make it 1996. We were camping in tents on the main grounds inside the fort. The porta-potties were on the other end of the tunnel at the entrance. I'd gotten up in the middle of the night and headed to the bathroom. On my way back, I heard my name whispered in my right ear. I was the only one around. Everyone else was asleep. I took off at a run. (laughs)
2: I don't (laughs) play. No, I I agree. I would be doing the same thing.
1: (laughs) My name kept being said louder and louder. I got back in my tent and fought my way back to sleep. I don't know how you would go back to sleep after that. When we were driving back to Mobile, there kept being knocks on the car window. And for about a week, everywhere I went, I heard raps on windows. Other people heard them too. Spooky. Uh, That's more than just spooky. That's creepy
2: as hell. Well, somebody's clearly following along and so the fact that other people experienced it with her? Yeah. That is very creepy.
1: That is because I was like, oh, something followed you home and then it's like, well, maybe it's just her imagination, but if right. other people are hearing it? <laughs> that was where my head went as well. Yeah, yikes. And then Matt sent us this email. Good afternoon, ladies. I'm a listener from Cleveland, Ohio. I've been binging on your podcast since August of this year, 2022, and I'm at episode 363. He is making his way through there. I'm a skeptic, but I love reading about hauntings and I love listening to your podcast. Forgive me if this has been asked before, but listening to your discussions while you were on the USS North Carolina, I've always wondered about this. Do you know if anyone has ever asked a ghost if they know they are dead? I've also asked my wife this question. Do ghosts continue doing things if no one is there or are they just active when people are around?
2: I would imagine that they're constantly doing something. They're they're going about their life just like we would if nobody was around us. And what's that saying? If a tree falls in the woods, (laughs) does
1: it make a sound? (laughs) Exactly. Obviously, it does, even if we're not there to hear it. I believe that these places are just as active, whether there's somebody in them or not. I tend to believe that they might be a little more active when people are in them, especially doing investigations, because you're giving them attention and something to feed off of. Yeah, energy. And it's one of the reasons, too, why I always say I think it's actually better to have the lights on when you're investigating, because having all that electrical equipment and stuff going, wouldn't that be better for them to have that to feed off of?
2: Yeah, as long as you keep your EMF away from the electrical lines and so forth. <laughs> yes, but I I
1: totally believe that these places are just as active whether we're there to experience it or not. Just because we're not there to experience it doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. Now, the other question is interesting. Do you know if anyone has ever asked a ghost if they know they are dead? I do believe we've seen some paranormal shows where they do ask that question. We have never asked that question And we try to stay away from asking questions about being dead, like when did you die die?" or how did you die or did it hurt when you died?
2: Especially around children's spirits.
1: Yeah. When it's kids involved, we really don't talk about it. But we we try to stay away from that whole thing because we're never going to know until we get there. And clearly we're not able to tell people because we haven't had anybody tell us that. But I don't know that people that are dead realize that they're dead.
2: I think some realize and others don't. Yeah. That's the the overall feeling that I've gotten through the different investigations we've done.
1: And I don't want to be the catalyst for upsetting them or anything like that by doing that. Like, you know, if you don't know you're dead and then somebody's like, so do you know you're dead or how did you die? And they'd be like, what? What do
2: you mean? Is that why nobody's paying any yeah. attention to me? We're always very respectful and we don't want to cause any turmoil for any spirits that are communicating with us.
1: Yeah. Some other people might have other opinions on that, but we usually try to stay away from the whole dead thing. But it definitely, I've heard it being said many times to uh, spirits. I'm trying to remember with some of the shows that we've listened to, I know that they've gotten responses in regards to that. I know I've heard EVPs that do ask, am I dead? And other ones who are like, I'm dead. He also gave us a suggestion for a location, which I have had on our list. So we'll get that one up and going. And then something else that he pointed out, and we hear this from a lot of people is, especially right now with the way the current economy is going, there's a lot of people who would like to support the show, but they just can't. And we totally get that. Support for the show is not just a monetary thing. And I told him that I said, as long as you're sharing the show with somebody else, you're supporting the show because the more people we get listening to it, the better it is for us. So please, nobody ever feel bad that you can't support the show. We certainly don't think anything less of people who don't. We just like to give a little something like here at Christmas when we're sending out our stuff just to thank the people who are doing that because they really do help us to get the show going.
2: Absolutely. The show isn't free to produce. That's for certain. So all the support does help. But yes, sharing the show with others does help us grow. We want to thank you guys for tuning into this
1: episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye bye. This episode isn't brought to you by our executive producers.
0: Dispatches from the Grave
1: Digger. Well, Mort, you're going to have to get your shovel out because you're going to be moving some people. First of all, we're welcoming back Grant Hawkins. Thanks so much for coming back to the cemetery. And not only did he come back, but he's already increased his giving. <laughs> he is being put under a chest tomb. And then Mary Ann Farley, she increased her giving and she's going to be moved into a chest tomb. So get digging, Mort. You have work to do.
0: A work and no play makes Mort a dull boy.
2: Thank you so much for supporting History Goes Bump. We really, truly appreciate it.
0: Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, (laughs) Nick. and shape-shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.